Fun facts, Antarctica is not even cold enough. <laughs> Hello, spacers. From Austin, Texas, I'm Christopher Schmidt. And on today's show, I'm talking with Dr. Christine Corbett about astrophysics in Antarctica. Dr. Corbett works on the South Pole Telescope on site at the South Pole in Antarctica for the January, November 2016 winter over with the University of Chicago. Before we get started, some notes on where I'll be and some word from our sponsors. The CSS Summit is a three-day virtual conference this week. There's still time to get a ticket and get the recordings for the sessions. Uh, we're talking about CSS and SAS. And there's super fan technologies like SVG, animation API, design systems, and much, much more. You can pick up your tickets now and watch the sessions live now or get the recordings later and watch them later uh, at cssummit.com. Uber is giving me the opportunity to give new riders a $25 credit towards their very first ride. You can sign up at Christopher.org slash Uber. You can set it and forget it with a non-breaking space show newsletter. When a new show is ready, you can have it delivered straight to your mailbox by signing up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. You can find show notes and links discussed in today's episode at nonbreakingspace.tv. And be sure to follow me at Teleject on Twitter. That's T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. As always, thank you for subscribing, liking, and telling others about the non-breaking space show on iTunes. Now, on with the show. I honestly, it took me a while to figure out where you were in the world, and uh, <laughs> and when you and when we, you finally said New Zealand time zone, I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> just like I I really have to like write down pencil and paper where you are and do some math right where you are. So, and then you had to draw me a picture. Of where you were, what time zone, and how to deal with satellite issues. So, yeah, so you are very far away in the world. So, um, but welcome to the show, and and thank you for having time um, of your schedule yeah. to be with you. Yeah. So, uh, if you would, um, could you just uh, introduce uh, uh, who you are and and where you are? Because uh, I think this is the first time um, I'm actually talking to someone uh, in this, in a different continent like this. So. If you would mind. Uh. All right. Well, glad to be honored. Um, I'm Christine Corbett Moran. I'm usually a postdoc in astrophysics at Caltech, and I'm on a one year lead to do research on the South Pole Telescope here in Antarctica at the South Pole, which is in the middle of the Antarctic continent. Right. And it's and it's in uh, the night time right now. It's in the, the winter over. Is that right? It's what it's called right now? Yeah, so basically about half the year, six months of the year, uh, it's dark, and the other half, it's light, uh, with some periods of twilight in between. And not only do you have complete darkness, but also because of the extreme temperatures, um, planes, uh, excepting very rare emergencies, cannot come and leave. So there's about a nine-month period um, where the station is cut off, from any logistics or um, mail, et cetera, um, new personnel. And so during that time, people have to be committed to stay uh, and be obviously very physically healthy, um, et cetera. And that is called the winter over period. Someone who does that is called a winter over. What brought you to Antarctica? Like, What what part 
of this mission that you're on? Like, well, what, what brought you there? Um, I had a friend in college who came down to Antarctica several times working on under robotic, underwater robotics missions on the coast, um, mainly at McMurdo and field camps, and just saw so many cool videos and stories from the experience that I, I ever had a chance to go there. I really want to. And he really wanted to winter over at the South Pole, but because of a variety of factors, he didn't get the chance to. Um, and it was always in the back of my mind, if I ever have a career opportunity, I'd love to come down here. Um, and I got involved in astronomy and astrophysics, and I saw actually there are um, telescope opportunities down here. Um, and I applied last year. I didn't get the job. I applied with another experiment this year, and I did. So it was something kind of on my mind for many years. And then when I realized I had the qualifications um, and the opportunity and the interest, I was able to make my way down here, um, not in a straightforward path, but with a little effort. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So what was the experiment that you're working on? Uh, I work on an experiment called the South Pole Telescope, which is a 10-meter telescope, uh, which is really very, very large dish. Um, it's the millimeter wavelength, um, so it's more similar to a radio telescope than an optical telescope. It's not exactly the radio wavelength. Um, and with this telescope, we're observing what's called the cosmic microwave background radio. It's the afterglow from the Big Bang, about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. Um, you can actually observe the light from then, um, which has lost a lot of uh, energy, so it's very, very faint. It's about 3 Kelvin, which is very cold, much colder than Antarctica itself. Um, and so you need uh, very sophisticated um, electronics, receiving equipment, and environment uh, to be able to detect that. And with that, we can say things about the earliest galaxies and about cosmology, um, constrained dark energy, how galaxies formed, all sorts of fundamental physics questions. And so uh, if... Your 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 education is beyond me. So so if I ask you a stupid question, uh, please don't be. Afraid. No worries. All right. So so by examining this light from the Big Bang, uh, from the after the Big Bang, are you able just to see what it looks like, or is it just the light waves, or is it like what what do you how how are you able to detect it? Was what does this data look like, and then how can you then interpret it back into realistic information, I guess, or active information? Yeah. So visually, if you try to represent it, it looks actually kind of like white noise. And you have to um, go more into the statistics of things to be able to see anything in the noise. But it basically looks kind of like white noise. And that's because right after the Big Bang, the universe was mostly all the same. Uh, it wasn't like we had galaxies or clumps of stars or anything like that. But the, the tiny, tiny deviations from white noise or randomness show us where the universe was a little bit more dense um, than average. And it's exactly in those pockets where galaxies later form. Um, so directly from that, we can see that. In addition, the light has been traveling to us for literally billions and billions of years. Um, and sometimes if it intersects a certain environment, like a galaxy cluster, as the light's traveling along us, uh, its energy gets changed um, a little bit, either increased or decreased. Um, in the case of a galaxy cluster, it gets changed in such a way that it no longer appears in our data. So it actually appears as a little like hole or black spot. And we can use the size of that and various properties of that to say, oh, at this point, um, there was a galaxy cluster that was of this mass 
Um, and that's very interesting uh, to cosmologists and astrophysicists. Uh, SPT, the South Pole Telescope, has been able to discover some of the most massive galaxy clusters ever seen. Um, and these are very difficult to see optically because they're so distant and so um, faint by this point, but they affect the cosmic microwave background radiation in a different way so that um, it's much easier for us to see um, than, say, in an optical telescope. Okay. And then is this the only – I assume not, but I just want to say, is this the only t- telescope that can read those microwave technology, like that, that afterglow, or is there, there- – there's a few other experiments. So there's been several in space. There's um, the WMAP mission and the Planck mission, um, telescopes exactly like ours, but in space. Um, and they are obviously much, much, much more expensive and haven't, uh, <laughs> um, they also have a long lead time to upgrade. So, for example, SPT is doing an upgrade next year, and they're just flying a lot of people down here to Antarctica, you know, 20, 30 scientists to perform the upgrade. You can't do that in space. So um, being on Earth does have some advantages. Um, unfortunately, we have the Earth's atmosphere to deal with, but that's one of the reason why, reasons why we're in Antarctica is that here we're very high up. Uh, the South Pole is almost 10,000 feet elevation, wow. and it's also extremely dry, um, and water moisture um, in the air absorbs uh, exactly the wavelength of the radiation that we're looking for. So if the sky was very moist, we wouldn't be able to see anything. Right. So that's a great advantage of being in space in that there's not really a moist sky to deal with, but it's also a great advantage to be here in Antarctica because we're in a desert very high up, very right. close to space. Um, I should also mention there are a couple other ground-based telescopes like ours. Uh, there's an experiment called Polar Bear, which actually isn't at the pole. It's in South America. Um, so there are other experiments trying to uh, make the same observations that we are, but we're kind of in the ideal location, accepting space. And how long is your experiment going on? How, like when it, did it start at the start of your, of your stay there, or is it how long and, and when will it end? Yeah, so the telescope has actually been um, taking data and up and running for almost a decade. Okay. Um, so in various forms. Um, of course, they had to bring down a ton of material here. Everything here has flown in um, on the, the backs of giant military aircraft. And so it's there's quite no, difficult. There's no Antarctic <laughs> factory or Antarctica woods that uh, so you just cut down and build a house? Okay, all right. <laughs> and only in the past few years, they've... Uh, found what's called a traverse route where they can bring vehicles in. It, it's a very long trip, but they can actually drive some material here. Oh, wow. And so nowadays they do drive um, some of the fuel and other supplies here. Uh, but it took a while to find a safe and accessible route um, that was logistically possible to make it here. Okay. And, and how long does it take? Because there's an airfield, right? Um, about uh, 10 yeah. hours flight. And so I guess that's, I assume that they, f- they fly in their... Uh, well, I don't know. I forgot what the name of the air- airport is, but it's a British <laughs> station, right? It's a British uh, research station, um, or is that? Is they that usually it? come into they usually come into McMurdo, um, um, which is also very close to a New Zealand research oh. station. Oh. So they kind of share some of the logistics, and McMurdo is on the coast, so you can also bring in material with a um, with a ship. Okay. As well, so you can either do plane or ship. Uh, planes mostly fly from New Zealand, okay. um, and uh, ships might come from South America. Okay, 
but but in order to get the supplies to where you like where the telescope yeah. crew is though you would have to drive or fly right is that it or is there fly okay. yeah that's it um okay. and so the flight takes about five hours if i remember correctly okay. uh and then uh the traverses take weeks right right i mean and that just goes, goes to show you like how dangerous <laughs> dangerous it can be there because you still have to yeah. deal with the cold uh and yep. um stuff like that and a month ago there was a emergency flight right to uh to uh because yeah. of health conditions and there was also some someone got ill uh can't go into why or whatever but uh and then someone else so another person got ill as well is that right okay and then so that's that, that's the case yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so like and that that, yeah. that that made national news to 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 where we were <laughs> so it was just and uh and so from my reading about that story was that uh it took ten hours flight for the pilots to get to get to where you, you are, and then it took another ten hours for them to to recover, get off, you know, to recover flights, uh, and then make sure that the patients were good to go. And then what the amazing thing I found was that not that that it took ten hours to fly there, or that the pilots needed ten hours to recharge, or whatnot, was that you had to warm up the fuel so you could start the plane up again. And do that. So that's right. Yeah. So, so they actually started the process of um, preparations for that uh, about a week beforehand, and the planes as well. The planes are much smaller than the military size aircraft that fly a little faster. Yeah. So that's why it takes 10, uh, hours, 10 hours. But you need a very specialized type of plane on skis um, to come here. Uh, during the middle of winter, and this has been the only evacuation during the middle of winter. So it really was very heroic of the pilots to take the mission. It had never been done like this before, um, and people on station, you know, did prepare by doing various things, yeah. including um, warming up the fuel. <laughs> okay, yeah, and um, and so I think the last, uh, if I remember my my dates right, it was like 1969 or something like that was the last time when someone flew out or 79. Maybe that someone was actually flown out, and so it's it's been a while. They've done a couple evacuations um, on the edges of winter. Yeah. So winter here is uh, summer in North America. Um, so the three months of summer, the three months of winter in North America would be summer here, and vice versa. Um, but yeah, so they did kind of on the edges of that um, a couple in the past decade. Um, but I don't think there's ever been one done in the very middle yeah. of winter like this. Okay. The migration happened literally the day after midwinter. So it was wow. basically at the worst possible point. Right. No one will be able to evacuate because you couldn't possibly get that unlucky. <laughs> yeah. But we did, in the end, get kind of lucky with the weather mm -hmm. uh, in that the weather was only about minus 60 Fahrenheit, um, minus 70, I think, almost minus 80 at points. But lately it's been minus 90, almost minus 100. So the weather was a little bit warmer than, um, than is typical. All right. So you say so negative seventy Fahrenheit is lucky. I'm gonna put that right down. Where that's that down. warm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. So just while I talk about like your environment there, like one question I, I do want to ask is like, what is your typical day, if if there is one, uh, working in the station, uh, when it is like ninety degrees Fahrenheit? Like, do you just go outside for the fun of it? And also, like, oh, what do you do uh, when you're like when you're a typical work day and and, and whatnot. So, 
Um, so luckily I have, uh, there's two of us who are responsible for running the South Pole Telescope here over the winter, and we kind of switch off duties, mm. primary duties. Um, so uh, I will go out to the telescope, but only every other day. And it's almost a mile walk uh, there. And then you also have to walk back, et cetera. And when I'm out there, I'll do all sorts of routine checks, some routine maintenance, et cetera, on all the hardware and um, also schedule the observing day, et cetera. Um, and then when I'm not on um, duty out at the telescope, I'll be here on station often working on some computer projects, analyzing uh, the data that's coming out of SPT. Um, and then finally, uh, we also switch off weeks on call, so just like a doctor or a systems administrator, we have basically a pager system, and um, I switch off with my partner, my colleague, every other week, and then um, during that week, the telescope can call me at any time of the day, middle of the night, and um, just like a, a sick kid or a sick baby say, ah, <laughs> and then uh, sometimes I might have to rush out there to um, actually do repairs on site. Other times I'll be able to do some of those from station. Uh, mostly I can handle those on my own. Um, very occasionally I'll have to wake up my colleague or vice versa. She'll have to wake up me and say, you know, this is something we need to tackle together. It needs two people. Right. Um, so those are kind of the primary job-related um, so tasks. What, just what type of things <laughs> like with the, with, with, the, uh, with the satellite ping you about? Like, like oh, I, I, like, what type of problems... Could, could you ha tackle um, on your own or and what type of problems would you need two people for like what's the range of problems that you <laughs> tackle so we actually had a really bad problem at the beginning of the season right after we had gone through two months of intensive training every single day running the telescope uh our trainers both left and the very next day i was doing just some routine software maintenance and um the telescope went down and we couldn't figure out exactly why um, this was happening. I thought, you know, maybe because I'm inexperienced, but it really didn't seem that I did anything wrong. Um, and it turned out that the telescope relies on a um, GPS lock to get timing um, for all the different sensors so that they're synchronized. Okay. And if they're not synchronized, it'd be like watching a movie in random order. The frames are all mixed up and the movie doesn't make any sense. So it really needs this to, to function. And it turns out, we found out about a week later after we had jury-rigged a, a system with spare parts on the station to kind of replicate this, um, that all these cards worldwide had a firmware defect, so a fundamental defect that on this particular day, at this particular time, they stopped working. <laughs> oh, man. All right. <laughs> so that really needed uh, both of our expertise. I'm more um, on the software end of expertise, and my colleague is more on the hardware um, end of expertise. To our expertise to kind of troubleshoot, debug it, talk with the collaboration. We tried, you know, standard fixes. Nothing fixed it because this was a really non-standard problem. Right. Um, but usually the problems are more standard. Um, the telescope electronics have to be kept extraordinarily cold, and so there's a refrigeration system. And it's very important to make sure that this refrigeration system stays within a variety of temperatures and behaves as expected. And if anything weird comes up, we have a bunch of software checks in place and it'll give us a call and we'll have to take a look at the data. And if something is actually weird, 
uh, take some proactive steps. There are various switches, et cetera, that we can manipulate to change the temperatures. Um, so that might be a manual intervention, but stuff like that, it's more every day. It doesn't happen too often, but when it does happen, most often there's a pretty clear way of fixing it. And that's something that either myself or my colleague could go ahead and just do. And only if it was extraordinarily strange or a new situation would we have to kind of put our heads together and our experience together to try to fix it. Okay. And just to go back, so, so in this particular situation with the firmware and the hardware being in a defect, were you able just to jury rig a solution and, that, and that's what you're using right now? Or were you able to like... Yeah, just, actually... <laughs> We were able to put together, um, there's another telescope on station that does similar observations that had some old hardware that they were no longer using. They intended to return it um, to the north, but um, it was sitting here on station and it was older, um, and we managed to get that up and running again and put it as a replacement system for these newer cards. Um, Change the software, change the hardware, make a new connector, like all sorts of fun stuff. Wow. When we got it all working, the collaboration said, oh, we, we thought about switching to a system like that, which seems more reliable, but it just seemed like too much work. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, oh, <laughs> we were kind of forced into doing all that, yeah. all that work, but we did get it up and running um, at the beginning of the season. I think it was about February. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been running very stably since, and they're actually thinking to keep our system yeah. um, next year. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a good trial by fire. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. And I have to ask, uh, 90 degrees, 70 degrees below Fahrenheit, you have a fridge system for the telescope? So That is true. Yeah, it's a bit weird. Yeah. It's already extremely cold outside, but we actually get down to almost absolute zero. So extremely, extremely cold, the electronics of um, the telescope's receiver. Um, And that's because we use properties of superconducting, um, which superconductors need to be extraordinarily cold to function. Um, And we use these properties to be able to make extremely sensitive measurements of this really faint radiation. Uh, And so it's not the entire telescope, not the whole dish that needs to be kept that cold just a small portion of the electronics. Um, but it is very sensitive, and it really has to be at a very precise temperature range to function correctly. Okay, cool. All right, I just, I just had to ask. I was like, well, there's no way. Uh, yeah, I, I, think I, I think it's weird, too. <laughs> but, uh, fun, fun facts, Antarctica is not even cold enough. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, and so you, so you talk about we at the station that you're at right now. How many people are at the station where you are right now, like, Excuse me. Over the winter, there's uh, 46. Okay. Um, we had 48, but then we had this evacuation flight that took out two of our colleagues, who <laughs> apparently are doing quite well, mm-hmm. um, thankfully, uh, with proper medical care. Um, and so we're now 46 people, um, and about uh, I would say about 10 of us are scientists, and the rest of the crew is support staff um, and people doing you know everything from Cooks, running generators, um, doctors, uh, administration, carpenters, plumbers, um, all sorts of different different uh, professions here. Okay, are they all still? So are they all uh, permanent? Or are they just uh, go out? Like 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 you're there for a year, and are they in for a year, out for a year, as well? Um, a lot of people are here. Um, 
more temporary stays um, because it tends to be a place that is kind of polarizing. People like it here a lot. When they do like it here, a lot of people want to come back. Um, not everyone comes back to winter over, but there's people who come back, you know, every year in a summer. Um, there are several people on station. Uh, there was one person who has wintered seven times, wow. 13 times. Uh, six times, four times, two times, you know, there, there are many people who come back um, repeatedly. Uh, oftentimes they'll get, you know, when they get back, um, they'll get the whole summer off. Mm. Um, so they will get some time off and they may not come back every single year. Uh, they may occasionally take an entire year off. So okay. it definitely is possible to make a, a career of um, contracting here. Okay. So it sounds like there's a, you know, it's, Living there is kind of a unique situation. There's, and I guess there's unique customs, I would imagine, uh, for living yeah. there. So, like, what type of things that uh, happen there, you know, through the course of, of the year that, uh, that are kind of unique to, the, to this community? Is there? Um, so, definitely our big holidays um, are sunsets and sunrise mm -hmm. um and at both of those we have extremely fancy by our standards dinners and sunset dinner in particular happens you know after the station has already been closed for a couple months so we don't have a lot of fresh vegetables left um some of the food is more standard and a lot of the you know best stock of fruits and vegetables are are saved to serve at this very special dinner um that's a real bonding experience for the crew. Uh, at sunset, we watch, um, or at the last plane leaving, we watch um, the movie called The Thing, which is set in Antarctica. It's a, a horror story. And so as soon as you're really trapped on station, uh, that's what, what people watch. Um, and then our next big holiday after sunset is midwinter. Um, and there that also involves, you know, a very fancy dinner, et cetera. And midwinter lately, um, we've been watching the shining. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, nice. and that also, I hadn't seen it for a while. When I watched it, there are a lot of similarities between not, not in terms of like the creepiness and the ghosts and stuff, but the kitchen uh -huh. and this big hotel and we're in this big station and our kitchen looks very similar to the kitchen oh, wow. in the shining. So oh. it is something that gives you some pause. And this year, um, we have, you know, various teams that uh, help with emergency response just in case it's an emergency. And we have a fire team here. And of course, the fire team has issued axes. So during the middle of the movie, all of a sudden we see this big shadow of an axe. <laughs> <laughs> One of the fire team members just like <laughs> holding oh. his axe. Up. Awesome. So that was a, a funny prank. But uh, luckily, everyone on station seems uh, very well balanced. Okay. So that's good. <laughs> that's awesome. And then, um, if I remember correctly, like for your birthday, did you you cook for your for the crew there while you were there, or is that is it? I I did. So we're not allowed to cook just for ourselves in the kitchen. It's a professional kitchen, and it would be kind of chaos if forty six people were going in and out. Right. Um, and so we actually have uh, professionally cooked meals six out of seven days a week. But the the chefs get Sunday off because everyone needs a day off. Right. Um, and usually people save leftovers and there'll be sandwiches in the fridge. So there's also no need to cook for yourself on Sunday. You can, you know, just save a few leftovers from during the week, but you are allowed to cook if you cook for everyone. Oh, nice. Um, okay. So 
my birthday happened to fall on a Sunday, and um, I thought it'd be great to take that chance to give back. So I cooked a huge brunch for for the station and had a lot of guests. <laughs> Sweet, awesome. That's well, that's awesome. I bet everyone was happy about that. I just thought maybe that was a a thing that people did for their birthday. It was like to uh, <laughs> yeah. So. People do a variety of things for their birthday. Uh, one of the things that if your birthday does fall on a um, on a weekday, our chef and I don't know if they do this every year, but our chef um, says you know feel free to uh, request a special dessert and a special uh, type of food, and they're happy to make it on your birthday. So it ha- so happened my birthday fell on a Sunday, so I made my own. Um, but if your birthday falls on the week, the the chefs will kind of use that as an excuse to make your favorite meal. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, that's, that's awesome. That, that, that's a good touch. Yeah. Good touch. But yeah, the, <laughs> seeing the thing, um, uh, I just recently saw the thing uh, all the way through. So that was, that's pretty funny. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, the shining has a spa- special place in, in our hearts because, uh, uh, we had a conference that we put on, uh, at the Stanley hotel. So at the, Oh really? Yeah. yeah so I uh, think I, I, that's in Oregon, right? No, it's a uh, Colorado. So, Colorado. Okay, yeah. got it, got it, got it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty pretty awesome. So, and they actually have a film horror film festival up there as well too. So, so that'd be pretty good. Oh goodness. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Do you just go outside just for the fun of it? Because it's at seventy degrees Fahrenheit. I probably would not go outside for the fun of it. But that, but being but being cooped um, up, I may do that. You know. It's just... <laughs> So, I mean, I do get the chance to go. Some people don't get the chance to go outside for work. So I get the chance to go outside for work fairly often. I do go outside when there are auroras out. So we get really beautiful aurora displays oh, nice. um, here. But they're not always out. So I actually belong. We have um, we have radios, which are kind of our... We don't have cell phones here, but we have radios. And I subscribe to the Aurora channel on the radio. And if there are good Auroras out, then you can call and say, hey, there are great Auroras out. If I get one of those calls, I always go out. Oh, nice. um, No matter the time of the day, because it's real special um, to see the Auroras here. And it's kind of a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because it only gets – it's only dark when the station's fully closed. So you basically have to be a winter over here to see the quality of the auroras um, that we see uh, just because it's um, so far south and um, so dark that um, we can see really neat ones. So that's when I, I always go outside. I don't usually go outside for like a walk, but <laughs> okay. um, I'll go outside for the auroras. And I do get to take, you know, I walk, you know, six miles a week outside. So I do get to spend a lot of time outside just for work as well. And I enjoy it. The, the part that I do not like is um, if uh, if the winds are really strong, then it is legitimately cold. Um, I've gotten frost nip a couple times here. I got a little cross here. I've gotten it here. So um, the winds are really high. I don't really like being outside. Um, and I, the process of bundling up takes a while, but once you're all bundled and all your layers and your big thousand dollar jacket mm-hmm. made by Canada, it's all very warm as long as the wind isn't too high yeah. and I can walk and I'll be warmer out there than I am in the station in my like hat and scarf and whatever, just being outside. So it's not so bad uh, most of the time. Uh, it just takes a while to put on your spacesuit. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, spacesuit. So I guess you you don't get to play uh, Pokemon Go on your on your on your walkie-talkie at all down there. 
So uh, people have, uh, just as an experiment, tried to see if Pokemon Go would work down here. Um, and the, the problem is more that um, the map coordinates, uh, oh. Niantic didn't do a good job at this, but the map coordinates kind of break down. So if you take like one step, you're like going like hundreds of miles. So there's no chance that you're going to be able to walk slow enough to, to catch a Pokemon. But otherwise, we would have a whole continent of Pokemon right. to ourselves. Right. It's probably for the best, though, because if Pokemon Go really worked on station, we'd find like some frozen scientist like <laughs> clutching their phone somewhere. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, man. True. Oh, man. Well, that's surprising. I, I, I will... I was expecting a big blow off of that one, but yeah, I, that's kind of cool. Like it's actually tried to figure that out. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Maybe they'll do an update though, and hopefully, we'll re we'll reach out to them yeah. and see. Hey, can you fix it for the people in Antarctica? Appreciate that. All right, cool. All right. Um, yeah. So, so, um, so your job is just. I just want to go back to the science of it and just, uh, just see. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it sounds like this has been going on for a decade, or. Or the collection has been going on for a decade. Uh, is it the? It's not the same. Is it the same experiment, or is it your experiment a little bit more? It's the same experiment, but maybe with a different twist on it. Um, and my reason for asking that is that by the end of your shift there, will the experiment, uh, your experiment, end, or will it be continued by someone else the next for the next shift? So basically, we're lucky that the sky is really large, or unlucky rather, in that there's a huge amount of sky to observe. And so every um, every season, uh, we observe a different patch of the sky, and you have to observe it over and over and over again. Um, because, again, the data is so faint that just like um, a long exposure picture in the dark, now, you might not be able to see anything if you leave your shutter open for half a second, but if you leave it open for 20 seconds, you might be able to see more. So we're basically doing a really long exposure picture of a small portion of the sky. Um, and so, you know, over the summer when it was light out, we were doing different portions of the sky, focusing on searching for the galaxy clusters. And now we're doing a particular portion focusing on just observing the CMB itself. And so every season, they've kind of looked at different portions of the sky getting more statistics there. And in addition, every few years, there are major upgrades in the electronics, uh, kind of, you know, like when you upgrade your camera from two megapixels to five megapixels or whatever, uh, it can cause a big difference in your, your photo quality and the information that you get out scientifically. So we've kind of doubled our resolution um, over the years. And this summer, that's happening again, where they're doing another major upgrade of the the camera of the telescope. So again, once you do one of those upgrades, you might want to take the same photo that you did before to kind of compare and also, you know, see the increased detail. Um, so, but even if we just had the same electronics, there's just so much sky to observe and it takes us so long just to observe a little section because of the exposure time that we need um, that we wouldn't run out of things to do. Okay. Okay, so it sounds but, like... But yeah, basically the experiment will continue, you know, next year and there'll be a new set of winter overs. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so what, what was the future look like for you after, you know, like, you know, safe and sound, you know, knock on wood, that, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, after this experience, which is going to be like once in a lifetime experience, uh, is it something that you want to come back to? Uh, what are you looking forward to? I think you were on a, you said you were on a sabbatical maybe um, for previous yeah. things. So, so, so what does the future look like? For you, like, 
Yeah. So when, when I get back, I'm taking about a month and a half of vacation. <laughs> so that'll be nice. <laughs> um, I think I'm, I'm not one to just sit around the house. So I'm probably going to do some volunteer work in the LA area. I haven't quite decided where I'm going to volunteer, but that'll be um, kind of a fun little staycation, get myself back into to life. Uh, and then starting in January, I'm back doing research at Caltech. Um, and I do research again on high massive galaxy clusters, but more on the computation end of things. Um, so actually simulating them rather than looking at them directly. Um, so I'll continue with that, but I'm also hoping to stay involved with the South Pole Telescope and, and data um, analysis and working with them. And um, we'll see you know, how well that works moving forward. I have to prioritize my time. But uh, basically I'm on a multi-year research grant at Caltech so I have funding to stay at Caltech through 2019. Um, so I have a few years to, to settle down and research and then hopefully find another research opportunity um, wherever it might arise. Um, you have to move quite a lot if you want to stay in the field because unfortunately there aren't too many jobs doing um, doing this sort of thing. And I think that's because it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very cool. and. I know it's very cold where you are right now, so which is that's also also the case. <laughs> yes, cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for spending uh, time with us today. I know uh, we're we have a short window. Uh, uh, yeah, that's true. My satellite window will, right? will end, and I won't have internet anymore. <laughs> so yeah, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But how can, I know you also have a, a website or, or a Twitter account. So how can where can people find you on the internet uh, to follow up on your uh, your adventures? Yeah, I think the best place to start out is my Twitter, which is Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T-T. Um, and then from there, my bio links to my website, and then you'll be able to get everything from my PGP key to links to my papers to um, photos I took of my food, you know, anything <laughs> you want. <laughs> All right. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, I really appreciate your time.